0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. Today, we have eight mental health questions, everything from skin picking, um, hair picking and pulling to memories about traumas. We get into separating work from life and work-life boundaries and everything in between without further ado let's jump right in now question number one says hey katie what causes people to pick their lips bite their nails or scratch their skin not only when they're triggered but at random moments when they're safe and there's nothing wrong i've struggled with picking my lips since i was three and now that i'm nearly 30 i've had enough and i want to stop The reason why I started this bad habit goes back to a teacher that I had in elementary school who was quite rude and mean, upping the stress levels to the max nearly daily with an inappropriate authoritative attitude and unnecessary impatience. She yelled at me once in front of my classmates just because I was talking too softly and she became angry with me for not speaking up. Wow. I was a very shy, I was very shy as a kid and I barely spoke in class unless I was comfortable or I had to because I was called on and there was no option but to speak. And then as a quote unquote consequence, she put me outside in the hallway to think about what I did. What? How do people like this become teachers, by the way? I feel like becoming a teacher is akin to becoming a therapist where the job itself doesn't, it's not like extremely lucrative, Like we don't make a lot of money. I know people say like, oh, therapy costs so much, but between the rental of your, your space, if you do billing that costs you, um, your malpractice insurance, keeping your license up, like the overhead of it, you don't make a ton of money. Um, you do it because you love doing it. And I don't understand why teachers wouldn't be the same. Like, wouldn't you do it because you love, I know we can all lose our tempers, but just to be an asshole all the time, you're like, maybe pick a different line of work. Um, Okay. Needless to say, this event caused my brain to spiral with anxiety, of course, ever since I've been picking my lips, usually my bottom, to the point sometimes that I bleed, especially if my PTSD kicks in or if I'm super anxious in a tense situation, or strangely, neither happens, and unfortunately... And fortunately, this is easier to control. But again, it's like I don't even know what I'm do- that I'm doing it. Both habits grew worse after an abusive relationship with an ex, and even more so during the pandemic when the world was in lockdown. Talk about extreme anxiety and trauma, right? I really want to take better care of myself, and these anxiety-induced habits are preventing me from doing so. As mentioned, my brain seems to dissociate during triggering moments or when there's nothing to worry about, and I don't know why and what to do to stop. It's so aggravating. I've tried everything and since I'm not in therapy at the moment looking for a new one, which has been so difficult. I understand. I'm stuck. Please help. Okay. I thought this was a great question and there's an add on to it as well. I think two, two add ons. Um, When it comes to skin picking, whether we just pick at our faces, whether we pick at scabs, whether we pick at our fingernails, I've had not only patients, but a ton of friends, family members, and people I've seen out in public struggle with this. It's incredibly common. Like One of my roommates in college used to pick at her fingers really bad and she would get fake nails put on because she couldn't pick with them. And so that was her way of stopping that. Um, a girl I used to nanny when she was a teenager, she was like 12 years old. She would pick at her bottom lip as well until it would bleed. Um, and then I've, I've had tons of patients who like hair pulling, skin picking, you call it excoriation or trichotillomania. Those are the two diagnoses that you could talk. Skin picking is the excoriation or skin picking disorder. And then the trichotillomania is hair pulling disorder. And something that I think other people do Who haven't done this or haven't been around it don't understand is that the reason that we do it usually is because when it comes to skin picking or hair pulling specifically, it's when something feels different. Like, Part of our skin doesn't feel as smooth. It's got like a rough bit to it. Or the hair, as we pull on our hair, one of the hairs feels differently. And we can't really describe it to someone other than that it feels wrong and it needs to go. And so we have to to pick it, we have to pull it until it feels quote unquote back to normal or what what feels good, okay? In my mind, this is a form of kind of, I would call it like an offshoot of OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder because we do it all the time. And if we don't pull the hair or pick the skin, the anxiety builds, okay? Now, I know it's not exactly as OCD, that's why it's kind of like an offshoot, but I think of it, I kind of conceptualize it in that same realm, okay? Now, hang with me. The reason being that these behaviors, all of them, picking my fingernails, pulling hairs, picking my skin, picking scabs, any of that is all done to self-soothe. It's a coping skill. When we start to feel overly anxious, overwhelmed, Um, it makes us feel good. And here's why it happens when we're not actively being triggered. It's just like things that we do. um, Like I used to chew my nails when I was a kid and I would bite my nails and it was a self-soothing habit that I would just do constantly because it felt good in whatever way. Now, did it really feel good? I know when I say it feels good, people are like, I don't really like that I do it. It's not about that. A lot of times it's the ritual or the repetition of it that is soothing to our system. And we're like, oh, so even if we're not triggered, we're like, oh, this feels good. I'm going to keep doing this thing because it's kind of calming and it feels good. Whether we consciously recognize that or not. Okay. Does that make sense? I hope so. So anxiety is the primary driver in all of these behaviors, whether that comes from hair pulling, skin picking, uh, what have you. Um, And honestly, the way to stop is to put it off, just like OCD, if we put off the compulsion, for as long as we can. I know it's super uncomfortable, but we're going to have to try to put it off. And putting it off can mean that we distract with other things, right? Have other coping skills we can do. Like maybe I go for a walk. Maybe I call a friend. Maybe I, um one of my friends who used to pick at her nails, she would paint them. And in doing so you couldn't really touch them for a while. And the time that it took for the paint to dry, the urge had gone away. And that's one person's example, but you can see what I mean. Um, knitting or crocheting, do uh, cross stitch, things that we have to do with our hands can really help. Um, if you like to build things or create things, working with your hands that way, doing crafts and things like that can be really helpful too. Um, but putting it off and having other things that are soothing. Now, you might be saying, but I don't know what's soothing. That's okay. We're going to try. Maybe that means we try to take a, a nice bath or a, a shower, or maybe we um, do a body shake. Whew, get that energy out. Maybe we go for a walk, maybe we pet an animal, maybe we vent to someone, maybe we journal, right? There's a ton of different things we can do, whether it is a distraction-based coping skill, something like going for a walk, petting a dog, organizing something in your home, or if it's a process-based coping skill, things like calling a friend or journaling, right? Or impulse logs. I haven't talked about impulse logs in a while. Impulse logs are great, especially when we have an impulse or an urge to do something that we don't want to do. And impulse logs essentially forces us to slow down, consider what it is we want to do what the impulse is, and what's driving it. So what are the worry thoughts? What is it that's coming up for us? Why is it we want to do this thing? And can we do something else instead, you know, kind of prompts us along the way um, so that we can kind of fill out that log before we do the behavior, the impulsive behavior. Okay. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's really why it happens. And the way to stop is to try to find other things that soothe. Now, Trust me when I tell you that initially all the quote-unquote healthy soothings, they're not going to feel good. We're not going to like them. They might not work as well. We might have to do three, four, five of them before we start to feel uh, a little bit better. So be patient. Stick with it. I know it sucks and you're like, but I'm still doing the thing that I don't want to do. It's not black and white. It's not all or nothing. We can't just say, oh, I want to stop and stop something. That's unfortunately just not how... uh, It's not just not how life works, but it's not how behavioral change works. It took us a while to get into the habit that we're into. Obviously, it started. We know what the like the first beginning trigger was, but it's built up over time. And so we have to un kind of undo that slowly. Okay. So be patient with yourself. And Also getting to know your anxiety could be helpful too as we feel it ramp up. Are there, can we put tools in place or coping skills in place more earlier on before we catch ourselves picking or pulling or anything, scratching? Um, The the sooner we can recognize our anxiety, the sooner we can use other coping skills to help calm us down, okay? Now there's an add-on on on this that says, I do this a lot. I self-harm as well, but it doesn't feel the same. It's a different Usually it's a different motivator, not always, but self-harm isn't usually, I shouldn't say usually, but in my experience with my patients, self-harm isn't only triggered by anxiety. It's usually something to do with trauma. Now, not always, um, but with BPD, with my BPD patients, which is also a lot of times born out of trauma, my patients will tell me that it expresses the pain that they feel inside, right? So there, it's not really an anxiety thing, but it does give a relief it's just, ooh, sorry, fighting a yawn here. It's not you, it's me. It's because I'm talking a lot. <laughs> um, so it's not the same kind of relief that we get from it. It's almost like a release of the pain that we already feel. I don't know if that makes sense, but that that small difference can be feel very, di- very big, okay? Um, so it's a, uh, a self-harm as well, but it doesn't feel the same. I scratch healing wounds and cuts and my skin in general. And sometimes it's just not self-harm. So what could it be? It's anxiety driven. Again, like it's just another way of soothing. We have a lot of different coping skills we're pulling from, right? We could um struggle with alcohol or drugs. We could overshop. We could gamble. We could have an unhealthy relationship with sex. Oop, I bumped my microphone. Um, where we're, you know, engaging in sexual behavior a lot in ways that isn't really fulfilling to us, but it's more like a coping, a numb out, right? We can also pick our skin. Uh, pull our hair. And all of this is done as a way to kind of calm our nervous system. And so you have a bunch of different things you're doing, whether it's a self-harm or the skin picking, um, and they all are something that you utilize so that you don't feel so overwhelmed and your nervous system doesn't feel so stressed does that make sense? And I know you're like, but but they don't feel the same. That's why we're doing multiple things. We're probably trying to target different sensations, right? Maybe we also use food as a way to cope, right? We talk about eating disorders all the time. All of these things can be done as a way to numb out, as a way to physically feel what we're feeling emotionally, as a distraction from the pain that we feel. Um, And that distraction component is huge and probably a part of all of these coping skills, because when we engage in stuff like this, we distract from it because all of our brain space, all of our focus goes into doing this other thing. And it doesn't leave any space for us to be like, yeah, my feelings were really hurt when, you know, my sister did that, or when my dad did this, or when I was abused, I felt so helpless and hopeless. Like we don't want to think about those things because they're uncomfortable. And so we distract with whatever. And so that's why they feel different. And that's why we engage in both is because they probably serve their own purpose. And in some way help us calm down and soothe. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay. Um. Yeah, so it says in general, it's just not self harm. So what could it be? It's it's anxiety driven at the core, I believe the scratching and the skin picking. Now self injury can come from anxiety can also come from PTSD response, you know, that over stimulation, that hypervigilance. Um. Yeah, it could come from anything like that. Now the last add-on says, "I'm really bad with my skin in general, and sometimes, oh wait, no, sorry, really um, really bad with skin picking my scalp for the past year, causing infections, and pain in my elbows and shoulders from constantly having my hands raised, picking. Trying to stop is terribly distressing and makes me want to do it more. I don't know how to break out of this. Any advice, please? The same as I kind of said before is it's a soothing uh, it's a coping skill, it's a way to soothe, and so we have to find other things that are soothing. And I know you're thinking, well, nothing's soothing like that. It might not be, but we might have to try two, three, four, five different coping skills that are quote unquote healthy before this unhealthy urge goes away. I know it sucks, but when we have these unhealthy patterns and these unhealthy behaviors we've been using for a long time, not only are they can they sometimes be, especially with self-injury, not necessarily with skin picking so much, but with self-injury and eating disorders, they can be like life-threatening in some ways and have that little risk involved. So that's extra like stimulating to our nervous system, meaning more numbing. So we not only have to combat that, but we also have to combat the fact that we've been doing that one a long time. So it feels the best because that's like the, it's kind of the, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like the rut that has run in our brain between feeling distressed and doing this activity. And we've run that route so many times. It's a well-worn route. (laughs) It's tough to say. Um, So much so that to not do that just feels uncomfortable, right? It's not quote unquote normal for us. So it takes extra oomph to try to do something else. So don't think that just because these healthy coping skills aren't working as well means that they will never work. It really just means that we might need a little extra effort for for those new healthier things to feel comfortable in the way the unhealthy one does. Does that make sense? I hope so. And I feel like I've answered all of your questions with this. If you have more, feel free to follow up. We're going to move on to question number two. Do you struggle with attachment? I am hosting a mental health workshop on all things attachment. We'll figure out what attachment style we have, why we can struggle with attachment, how our attachment style could be affecting our relationships, and most importantly, we will learn solutions and resources to heal. Click the link if you're interested in learning more. Question number two says, Hi Katie, thank you so much for your channel and specifically for this podcast. Of course, I'm so glad you find it helpful. It asks, why do I feel the need to remember what happened to me, Hmm. meaning the specifics during my childhood sexual abuse? I don't really remember every single thing that was done to me during my two-year period of, of child sexual abuse. I've been feeling the need to talk about it with my therapist as thoroughly as I can, hoping this will help me remember more. I know this would be really painful, but I feel this profound need for some time now. I've been going through this situation and I wanted to know what your thoughts were. And I'm sorry if this was confusing. English isn't my first language. Thank you so much beforehand. Your English is impeccable and wonderful. Okay, um, and there's some comments on this. We have quite a few add-ons. So let's get into this first and then we'll move into those other additional questions. The The need or the want to remember comes from a place of validation. And that can be really hard for us to come by when we've been traumatized. And it can also feel like because the validation are a really key component. Like, think about it this way. So often when we're abused, we tell ourselves it wasn't that bad. We minimize, right? Um, it wasn't as bad as I remember, or, you know, it only happened for a little while. We try to mm, push it down. But once we've admitted to ourselves or to our therapist that, yeah, I think, I think maybe I was abused, then we feel like we need evidence and a shit ton of it to support the fact that it was abuse, and we have PTSD. We were affected by it. It's really hard for us to allow for that in our lives and to accept it. Does that make sense? Because there's the, the, shame, uh, the shame message we've been telling ourselves over and over and over, right? that narrative that keeps spinning, saying like something's wrong with me, I must've caused this, I I shouldn't be feeling this bad, it should've been easier for me to get over, all those things we tell ourselves in order to fight back against that. We feel like I need to have all the information because I need to know that it happened. I need to be able to prove to myself that how I feel is warranted. Does that make sense? And so we want as much evidence as possible and the memory component is gonna be key in that. Because then we're like, but no, this happened. It's like we have the facts and we can support it, which is why when we struggle with memory, which is incredibly common when we've been traumatized, when we struggle with our memory, it can make the invalidation and the minimization even stronger. And we can be like, I know your therapist says that you had a trauma, but you really didn't, because you don't even remember it. It didn't even happen. It's not even as bad as you thought it was, right? We have all that like shit talking happening, essentially like shame talk. And so in order to combat it, we feel this urge to remember. Now, that's primarily, in my experience, where this is coming from, um, because we like to downplay. Okay? And I think even on and as a side note for the person who asked this question, it sounds like because you want to like work through it and you want to talk it through, you want to make sure you can do it as thoroughly as possible. You're probably, um, I'm just hypothesizing, kind of type A and like to complete everything 100% maybe perfectionistic a little bit, um, This it feeds into that as well. Because then we're like, well, I want to do this completely because I don't want to have these symptoms anymore and I'm going to do this right, right? I'm going to do it 100%. And so when we can't remember 100% of it, it's like, oh, we like fight against ourselves, okay? But also just as a side note, the memories are hard to come by often because of dissociation and the trauma itself. It, our brain, it can be too overwhelming to our nervous system that it might not have been able to even form a full memory okay so just because you don't remember it doesn't mean it didn't happen and there's a comment on this says hi i would also love for you to give us some advice to help us manage the guilt distress and anxiety that comes after remembering new details about the abuse especially if it happened in our family even if i don't tell anyone about the things i remember i feel like a terrible person for remembering the details and realizing that it was actually abuse as if the mere act of remembering was a betrayal I guess for this instead of trying to combat the you know the guilt stress anxiety uh, head on I would dig into the kind of the why behind this being a betrayal were you told when you were younger that if you told anybody you were betraying the family or that it would tear the family apart or those things that you thought would happen even if you weren't told? Let's be curious, not judgmental about this thought process because in there is actually your answer to this guilt, distress, and anxiety because the, the truth is, and I'm sure you and uh, you can also commiserate with me that the, the logic brain of us can look at this and say, well, clearly if something happened, just me remembering it, isn't my fault. I didn't cause it. Right. We logically know that, but emotionally we don't accept it. Right. It doesn't, that doesn't feel right. And so that's why we're kind of, you know, the pushing back and the, that, that anxiety, that distress, that guilt comes up and we're like, how come I'm remembering this? So let's be curious about that process, that, that automatic thought that like, oh my God, I remember this. Now I'm to blame because if I didn't remember it, what? then we would just ignore it and things would go on. Okay, would that mean that it didn't happen? No, would that mean that, you know, me or my brother, my sister, my mother, whoever, wasn't still, my father wasn't still harmed by it? Probably not, right? Um, Let's think about it. What is it about remembering that you think is a betrayal? Is it, you have to sometimes do some inner child work, kind of have to think back to when the abuse or the trauma was happening. What did we internalize about that? Did we want to keep our mouth shut to keep our family together? Did we think that we were making it into a bigger deal because our abuser told us we were being, you know, a sissy, uh, such a child, you're, you're so sensitive? Like, what were we told? There are going to be a lot of like terms that were thrown out at us to make us feel worse about being hurt. Um, let's dig into that and be curious, not judgmental about where we think this betrayal thought comes from, Okay. Okay. I know that's a shitty answer, by the way, too, but it's, we can't combat it until we understand it. So I'm sorry. Another add-on says, I have discussed sexual abuse with my therapist, and I don't remember anything specific, but she believes it happened. And there are many things which point towards it. We haven't discussed in detail for a very long time, but I want to go through it all again and try to remember, or rather convince myself of what the evidence says is true. Would this be helpful? Or is it just going around in circles? Or could this be a way of self-sabotage? I think you. what I'm guessing is happening is because this uh, Pandora's box of abuse was opened with your therapist and then nothing, it sounds like not enough was done with it, that your brain is like, no, I really want to work through this, right? That's why you're like, I want to go through it again. I want to try to remember. I want to try to like process this. That's because you finally feel okay to do it. And so I would let your therapist know that this is coming up, that, hey, I'm wanting to go back through this again. I know I don't have memory. Um, I'm hoping it will recall some things. I think it's your brain trying to make sense of what's going on and what maybe it knows happened, but can't quite prove yet. And we have to give ourselves an opportunity to try to do that. It doesn't mean that it's going to come out, and we're going to have all the details, and everything will be resolved and tied up in a pretty little bow. But we have to give ourselves the opportunity, because to not is what's causing you feel like you're, you're kind of going in circles, and you know, um, and feeling maybe stuck. Because sometimes we can feel like we can't move forward in therapy. We're like, Ugh, everything I just there's nothing because we haven't been, had a chance to talk it through. Now, all that to say that if there is no memory then that's what we're going to have to work on in therapy is the not just acceptance of that lack of memory, but continuing to validate our trauma experience, even though we don't remember it. And that kind of healing and that letting go of, you know, the expectation or assumption that we remember everything that happens to us and, you know, um, that's going to be that process that you work on with your therapist and that's going to be incredibly healing. And I don't believe any of this is self-sabotage. I don't think it's going around in circles. I think it's part of your brain trying to make sense of it. And we just want to, we want one more opportunity to go through it and see what's what and then figure out where we move to next. If there are no memories, we have to work on that acceptance piece and that letting go of the expectation that there would be memories. Um, and that in and of itself is really tricky. You also might want to look into other types of therapy because when there aren't actual like memories, meaning um, I'd call like audio visual, right? Like things that I see, things that I hear, we don't have any of that. Would somatic type of therapy be helpful? Like getting into your body. Do we have body memories? Um, Or do we want to do EMDR? EMDR is a little different. It, it doesn't require you to talk everything out in detail. It doesn't require you to have memory of a bunch of things. It kind of allows for your brain to find its own pathway through the memories we do have. And you will be surprised what it connects to and what it does recall. Um, yeah, so that those are kind of the options that I see. Um, I don't think that this is a bad thing. You clearly want to try to work through it. So let's give yourself an opportunity to do it. And if not, maybe talk to your therapist, see if they do other types of therapy, or if they think that you should be referred to see someone that does X, Y, or Z, you know, for a little bit. Um, yeah. Cause there are other ways to get in there that it doesn't have to be those audio and visual memories. Okay. And there was a, um, another comment. It says, what would you do if you'd rather not remember, but fear therapy may trigger flashbacks? I fear intimacy and my memory is often blocked in session. Could they be connected? I love and trust my psychiatrist, but I can't show her. Um, when we don't want to remember, that's a defense mechanism. It's protective. We might not feel safe enough to do that yet. And so... Pushing through that when we're not ready, I don't necessarily recommend because it can be re-traumatizing. Instead, we want to work on finding ways to soothe our system. So that would be what we call building up resources or building up coping skills. I know people get annoyed with me talking about these things, but they're incredibly important because our body's really complex. An emotional overwhelm can cause a lot of different things to happen to our system. Just read the ACEs study. And yes, I know the ACEs study is not a full list of traumas. It's not an exhaustive list of the ways that you can experience it, but what it does show us and the goal of the ACEs study is to show the correlation between our mental health and our physical health meaning that if our mental health doesn't take care of it, it can cause a ripple effect of a lot of other things like high blood pressure, heart disease. Um, we have patients in our, or people in our community who have autoimmune disorders now because of m- their mental illness and complex traumas. So just know that these kind of blockers that you have in place or these defense mechanisms are there to protect you. So we have to find ways to soothe our system so that it can let our protectors down, let our defenses down, help us feel okay enough to breathe and then get into it little by little. So let your psychiatrist know that this is what's happening. That like, I don't even want to remember anything. And I'm always afraid that therapy is going to trigger a flashback. And I just find myself just shutting down. And I don't know why. Um, Because, I mean, yeah, fear... Intimacy and memory are often blocked. I, connection probably doesn't feel very safe and that would have to do with the past trauma. But again, that's not, I wouldn't even hit it head on that way so much. Yet, I would try to find some things that are soothing to your system. What feels calming to you? Is it a nice hot shower? Is it um, cuddling up on the couch with a blanket and maybe your dog or cat or something cuddled up next to you? Is it... Um, a certain memory you have of feeling okay? Like, let's try to think about it. Can we do a body shake? How does that feel? Does that actually release anything? Have we tried like working out at all? Because that's other body movement, even just walking around the block. Um, Let's just think of some things and try some things to help calm your system down. Because until we do that, these defense mechanisms of, you know, I don't know, just fear of showing your psychiatrist anything, and that that's going to, cause a flashback and trigger you and make you feel worse. Those are going to keep happening until we're like, "Ah, you know what? I'm going to do my skills or my tools, my resources. Then I'm going to breathe and I'm going to try to talk about it. And we'll see how far we get. If we get, you know, 5% in and we're like, oh, and then the defenses come back up. That's okay. That's progress. Every percentage more we're able to talk and be open and do the work, the better but it's just going to take some time. We're building up new muscles, right? And so the, the intimacy and memory being connected, totally. I have a feeling that probably the abuse happened from someone who was close to you. So then that doesn't feel safe. So that in and of itself, maybe even feeling quote unquote safe with your psychiatrist is triggering. And that's why we have to try to find some ways to soothe so we can move past that. Okay. Now, the last add-on add on says, for me, it's the same thing, but I also somehow want other people to know that I have had certain mental health struggles because I feel, like, um, I feel like if they know I had social anxiety disorder, they wouldn't think I was a weirdo. Or if they knew I had an eating disorder, they wouldn't think negatively about me for gaining weight. Why is that? The validation. We all seek validation externally, internally, or both. And it sounds like in your case, you want to remember, but you also want other people to know how bad it's been. Because in a way, the shame you feel could be combated with that. If you felt like they understood. And there's something powerful about feeling heard and understood and maybe you never got that before and so that's why this craving is so strong or maybe somebody in your life gave it to you and they're not in your life anymore so we're looking for it elsewhere you know there's like a ton of reasons why this could feel good and why you would want this it's it's a very common human need to feel understood and that's essentially what you're hoping for because you otherwise you can feel really judged and that can make you kind of go in your shell even more and it sounds like you really don't want to So it's all promising. I don't think this is a bad thing. It's just something that I would talk to with your therapist and say like, "Mm, I find myself wishing other people knew because even as I read this, my thoughts for you, if I was your therapist, is to have you find someone, if there's someone in your life now, if not, there's something we'd work up to, but finding someone in your life that you feel... Okay, enough. Starting to share about these things so that at least one person in your life—not just you, not just your therapist—understands what you're going through and what you're working with, and you know, can meet you there and be supportive and validating. And I think that that could be incredibly healing. It's always interesting what we crave. Just tells us more about our true needs. Now, yes, the craving can be healthy or unhealthy, but if we really are curious about it, we can figure out what the need is. And I think for you for you, for the person that's this portion of the question, that need is to feel understood, maybe to feel important. You know, those might be really core needs that were never met when we were growing up. And so we're looking for them now. And it's, it's totally normal. There's nothing wrong with you. That's a very basic human need. Okay. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, happy Sunday from France, Katie. (laughs) Happy, well, happy Thursday now, but yes, happy Sunday. Says, I'm wondering if you could talk about how to process grief. Whew, I'm doing it myself. It's hard. I'm in therapy for two years and I was already working on my complex PTSD with my therapist. But this year I've been grieving both symbolically. I moved from Taiwan to my home country after years there and was separated for seven, oh, from a seven year long relationship. I'm so sorry. And grieving in a literal way since I lost a parent a few weeks ago. I'm so sorry. Jeez. Yeah, it's been tough, right? I feel like it's so much to go through and adding with the complex PTSD, I'm afraid somehow I'll always be thrown into some kind of existential crisis, never really finding stability in life. I feel very scared and overwhelmed and not sure how to deal with all of these feelings related to the loss. Would you have any advice? Thank you so much for this community that you've created. It's been really helping me get through all of this and to find some light and hope. Okay. Um, grief. God, it's so heavy. I guess... When my papa died, because we've had a bunch of loss in my family in the last like three years, but when my papa died at the end of 2019, oh, I forgot how heavy it was. I forgot just how exhausting grief is. So I'm so sorry that you're going through that. And I have a couple of grief-specific coping skills, and then we'll talk a little bit more about like the trauma of grief. Okay. So when it comes to grief, the best thing we can do, which I know this sounds kind of crazy is to talk about the good memories with people who knew them as well, to kind of commiserate and to lean into the things that we're going to miss. Yes, there'll be tears. That's why it's going to do it with someone else who knows them. Yes, there'll be like giggles and we'll laugh and we'll cry. And that's kind of part of an important healing process in the, the sharing of it. And I know that's uncomfortable, but I'm just throwing it out there that that time and time again, proves to be one of the most helpful ways to cope, okay? So seeing family, being around them, talking about it is going to be helpful. Now, that's when we've lost someone. Now, in the leaving your home country or moving from Taiwan to your home country after being years from then, seven-year-long relationship, like the, what I would call a uh, other types of grief not the traditional what we think of when we think of grief we think of death and loss but there's a ton of loss in life right that is where therapy comes in because yes we can talk to our friends about the relationship that we we're in and missing our our home uh, not our home country but the country that we lived in for a while I mean I even recently moved from you know Santa Monica to Austin and it's an adjustment and there is some grieving and I get like, homesick for, for Santa Monica, you know, and that's okay. Um, but you have to feel free to talk it out. And I think talking it out with a therapist and gaining some insight into where it's coming from and what you're truly missing. That's been key for me. I think when relationships end, I've like ended some friendships, you know, in the last, I mean, I guess it's been a while now, but let's say in the last 15 years, I've had two friendships end. And, um, it takes time to process that and it's okay to still miss them and to still want to reach out knowing that it's not what's going to happen, you know? Um, yeah. And it's hard. You got to give yourself some time and you're still going to have memories with that person. And you're going to bring things up. Just the other day, I mentioned something to, my, to Sean about one of my friends that I'm not friends with anymore because it, you know, got really toxic. But I was like, oh, remember when she did da-da-da-da? And he was like, yeah, I'm like, it was just funny, right? And it's a funny memory. And I think the same way that we talk about those kind of funny memories when someone has passed away we can do that with relationships too. I know you might not be at that stage yet, but just know that we can get there. You might be in the process of wanting, needing to journal about all of this, things that you miss about Taiwan, things that you miss about the person you're in a relationship with. We want to get it out and not feel like we have to swallow it deep and stuff it in our gullet. Because when we just stuff things down, it comes out and ways that aren't healthy. Things like, you know, like any of the things I was talking about other coping skills, right? We could, if we pick our skin or pulled our hair, that would increase. Um, If we had struggles with food, that would get worse. If we had a bad relationship with exercise, that would get triggered. Um, We can find ourselves drinking too much, spending too much money, like other ways to numb out when really what we're feeling is pain and upset and worry, and we don't know what to do with it. And so talk about it as much as you can journal about it as much as you can. Yes, I know it's tedious. Yes, I know it's exhausting, but it does get better. Okay. I've been through tons of different grief in my own life. I've walked patients through grief as well. It takes time. Unfortunately, nothing can be fixed. You know, overnight. It didn't, it can, that's the thing that sucks about grief is it can feel like it happens overnight, like, oh, the relationship ended, or oh, this person passed away, or oh, I moved, boom, and it was the grief started. But it's really a process, even knowing that we think we're going to have to move and then figuring out how we're going to move and then packing up our stuff. And a relationship usually deteriorates before it ends if we're honest with ourselves. And so a lot of times we do have the lead up and kind of the preparation, it's just the finality of things can be really hard. Um, So give yourself time to talk it out. Okay. And feeling it is okay. And talking it with people who knew the person that you lost can be part of that healing as well. Now there was a comment that says, and we'll dig into this a little more because there's more to it, but I want to read these uh, add-ons. As an add-on, how do I cope with not wanting to get close to anyone or enjoying anything in life anymore after experiencing so much loss? I feel like anytime I start to enjoy something or feel happy or start to trust and build a relationship with someone, something happens and it all falls apart. Things end. People leave or die. And it just all hurts too much to keep trying. This is a trauma response. And of course, we'd want to avoid pain, right? That's why one of the key... Uh, symptoms of PTSD is avoidance of the things that remind us of the trauma. So in this case, the loss of someone, people leaving, people dying is, is traumatizing. It's been traumatizing. And it, sometimes we forget what t- means to be traumatized. To be traumatized really means that what has happened to us is too much for our body and brain to process in the moment. It's essentially we don't have enough resilience or enough understanding to move through it. And so we become overwhelmed by it. And that overwhelm turns into PTSD, right? And we talk basically about trauma being like, oh, you fear for the safety or life of yourself or someone else. Now that can mean physical safety. That's what we often think of when we think of the term safety, but safety can be emotional or physical. And for you, that emotional safety, whew, when people, people die, people leave. I can't be emotionally safe. I can't cope with this, right? So how am I supposed to want to get in a relationship again? That's a trauma response. And so my encouragement for you would be to reach out to a therapist and start talking through it. Yes, I know that's hard. Yes, I know it's going to take time. But healing and moving on from anything like this is going to take time. You have a lot of loss. Grief is heavy and it takes fucking forever and it's overwhelming. But that urge to kind of pull back and that even catastrophizing. The person first at the beginning said, you know, I'm, how am I ever going to find stability in my life, right? I'm never going to. I'm always going to have existential crises. You're, you're saying that, you know, people always leave, people always die. That's, you know, we're going to the extremes because that's what we fear. And so we're using that fear as a motivator to keep us away from another healthy relationship or from moving through something, right? Um, yeah, I know it hurts a lot. But we have to be able to process those losses, because unfortunately, life doesn't come without loss. And this is a shitty I hated this quote, and I'm going to probably butcher it anyway, but I hated this quote when someone pulled it to me. I think it was I think it was after my grandma died or maybe it was Papa. But either way, I'd heard it somewhere and thought that's bullshit, but it's really true. And it said, "To grieve someone means that there was love there, and to live a life without love isn't one worth living. And I hate it, but it's also true. And I don't know who said it, but and I might've been butchering it now. It's like my own creation. But either way, I think that's important to remember that we do want love. We do want connection. Does it come with the potential or the possibility for pain? Always. Does that mean it's not worth it? I don't think that does. I think it's still worth it. But we have to be able to process through those losses because it can get overwhelming. And that weight of the the grief is so heavy. So talk about it. Journal about it. There are even grief support groups. I found those particularly helpful with my dad. I haven't gone to them since. Maybe I should look into them again. Um, But it can be really, really helpful. So I encourage you to work through that. And if you find a therapist who's uh, trauma-based or at least trauma-informed, or even a grief counselor, I, I was, I don't know if it still continues forever, but I was a certified grief counselor back when I was in college when I, or grad school, when I first started seeing patients, I became a certified grief counselor. Um, I went to a hospice program down in San Diego and got my credentials there. And so you can find someone who understands that as well. Okay. Now there was a final add-on. It says, how do we learn to let things go? I think closure is one of the hardest things, no matter if it's after a friendship breakup or after graduating school or moving, letting go has always been hard. I guess my question would be, what would it mean to let things go? Like if, if you woke up in the morning tomorrow and you had let things go, how would we know? Does that mean that you don't ruminate on the things anymore? That you don't replay old situations or wish for different things? What does it mean? And be honest. It's okay. There's no wrong answers. What would it mean to have let things go? How would you know? Because it's such a, a big term, right? It, it could encompass a lot of different things. And usually when people say like, how do I let things go? It means that we're ruminating on them. We're worried about them. We're spinning in it. We're thinking about it, blah, 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 over and over and over, right? So how do we let things go? We talk about it and we process it. I will tell you something that I learned recently. I've journaled a lot in my life, but I've never been forced to journal every day for 12 weeks. But I did that book, The Artist Way. I know I've ta- mentioned it a few times. I'm finished with it now, but it forced me to journal every day for 12 weeks. And one thing I learned that is, I think, life-changing is that you think, or I thought, I'll keep I make it personal, I thought that I would just continue to ruminate about things over and over and over and over and never be able to move past them because it seemed like I couldn't, right? I keep thinking about it, goddamn brain, thinking about things over and over. But when you journal about it, you can only journal about it so much. You kind of run out of things to say and that lets it go. For me, it released like that. It stopped the rumination. It stopped the, I don't know. I felt so much better. And so I've been trying to keep up with the journaling every day. I think it's really powerful and I encourage you to do it commit to yourself that you're going to journal for 30 minutes a day. I know that's a lot. And it's a huge commitment. And it was hard for me. Some days I didn't have enough time. I only did 15 minutes. If you even do five, just start writing about what you're ruminated on. And trust me when I tell you that you will run out of things to write and you'll find yourself writing the same things and annoyed with yourself. It's a really interesting process. And so I really think if you feel like you're ruminating, 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 the more we try to stuff it and stop it, the worse it's going to get. It's actually way more helpful to get it out. And I find writing and talking with a therapist or friends about it to be incredibly healing and beneficial. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, how can I learn to separate my work from the rest of my life? Good question. I'm a pediatric, pediatric oncology nurse. Wow. That's gotta be heavy. I care about my patients and their families so, so much. I find it really challenging to disconnect when I'm not working. I feel so guilty when I have normal issues that make me upset or angry because I feel like I should be more grateful since I'm so lucky. What they go through is so unfair and makes no sense. They deserve the world and I want to do everything I can to make them happy and to be there for them. When I'm off, I struggle to enjoy my life because I can't stop thinking about them when I'm at work. And I am so anxious because I feel like they deserve a better nurse than me. I'm so conflicted. I love my job, and I, I, I love my job, and love and care about my patients and families so much. But I struggle to balance everything. Okay, this is a great question. And first of all, your patients are lucky to have you, and lucky to have someone so empathic and so caring. I feel like we often talk about on this, you know, unfortunately in our community and on this podcast in particular about you know medical professionals that aren't as caring, and that can be so invalidating and so hard, right? So it's good to know there's people like you out there. However, as a fellow empath and someone who can just feel for people and feel really bad for people, I'm gonna give you some tips of my own and I'm gonna talk about it because what this really is is a need for boundaries. Okay. And I know when we talk about boundaries, we often talk about spoken boundaries, saying things like, if you keep treating me this way, I'm not gonna be able to see you anymore, right? That's a spoken boundary. There are a lot of boundaries that are necessary for. and just so you know, also boundaries are for safety and health for both, peace, both parties, both people involved in the boundary. Now for you, the people are like your patients and you, right? And we have to put those boundaries up. Now, the reason that they're healthy and good for both is because when you get a chance to recharge and you get a chance to actually be away from work and be upset about things happening in your life and get agitated, get angry. It's okay. Life is unfair for in a lot of ways for a lot of different people, and their pain doesn't take away from your ability to have pain too, okay? So when you get to be living your own life, feeling your own feelings, recharging on your own, you're going to be able to show up for them in a better way, in a more whole way, in a healthier way, okay? So couple of tips from me to you. Number one, when you leave work and when you go home, you need to have a ritual. There needs to be something that you do to kind of unwind, to process, to let it go, okay? Now, I understand because of like HIPAA laws, same as me, confidentiality, we can't just talk to anybody about our work, right? That's why it's really, really important to have people that you work with in your facility that you can talk to at work, now, that's obviously not the ritual in the leaving, but that's just a healthy thing. Like with therapists, the best thing I ever did was join that. We called it the journal club, but it was really like a, a way for psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists um, to get together and to talk about tricky cases. It was, you know, when it was like a consultation group, for lack of a better term and then those people are also bound by confidentiality you change you know the details so no one would even know but it was really helpful to get to talk about it and so that was one of the best things i did for myself and i encourage you to try to cultivate that in some shape or form where you work now the rituals around leaving work and getting home are going to be really important. Now, this can be everything from you change out of your scrubs and you put on your regular clothes or you shower and you did I want you to have a ritual. I want you to create something that you can do 90% of the time. Obviously, life is, you know, wild and there'll be things that we have to run right to and we don't get to do our full ritual and things like that. But I want you to have one of those. And it, it's helpful. It was helpful for me to have a ritual getting to work and a ritual coming back from work. And that was like, I'm putting on my therapist hat and I'm taking my therapist hat off, right? And it was kind of that boom, boom, that in and that out. Um, If you have to drive to work, which most people do, that's really helpful. I used to just drive in silence because I was like, I've listened to so many people today and I've just talked a lot. And I just feel like I just want to quiet. I just don't want to have to hear anything, right? So there's that. Or if you walk to work, my old office used to be like three blocks from our apartment. So I would just walk and I would have a ritual around that too. Um, there was a Starbucks, I would stop in, you know, you just have to have some things that you do every time. And I know that that sounds really silly, or it sounds really tedious, but that is in and of itself, the creation of a boundary, because the ritual helps us unwind and detach from work. Okay. Um, Now, when it comes to the unspoken boundaries, I was talking about spoken boundaries earlier, unspoken boundaries are what we're going to place here. And that means that You're having to talk to yourself, this is going to sound real weird, but in your own brain, you're going to talk to yourself about, if I choose to do things work-related outside of work, I better have a fucking good excuse, right? More so, I would say, I'm not going to do work things outside of work because it's not good for me. I know that's hard. I know placing that boundary is going to be difficult, but we're going to try to find ways to not do that. If you find yourself doing that, then we're going to have to distract, do something else, shake it out. We need to get out of the house. If we're in a, you know, we find ourselves having to do, like we're sitting and we're thinking about them and we're trying to figure out other ways to help them. I know it sounds bad to say this, but we can't spend our whole lives doing that, right? We need to have work-life balance so we can show up as a better nurse tomorrow. So when that happens, you need to do something different. Put on a TV show you like watching. Let's uh, decide to finally try that new recipe. Let's call that friend and get out of the house. Let's go down to the coffee shop and sit for a bit. Let's, I don't know, distract with anything that's healthy. Like I could even say like you could distract with uh, Instagram or TikTok or something on your phone just to get your brain out of that, Um and then do something else. And that boundary of I'm not going to engage with work when I'm not at work is going to take some time to build. Don't, you know, beat yourself up because you're not able to draw this firm line. It's not really like that. It's more like for the most part, I'm going to try to have my time be my time and then work time be work time. And it it takes time to build that up. Okay. Um, and that will allow you to feel more balanced. And something that I've always told myself, and I don't know if this is helpful, but again, I have, I had rituals. Um, I would, sometimes I would have to do work outside of work of like research for a patient, but I would schedule it in. So like on Wednesday, cause I was in my office Tuesdays, Thursdays for a long time. Um, on Wednesdays, I had an hour where I would do X, Y, or Z, right? And so I would schedule it in. And that was how that worked. I always made it during regular work hours. I never did stuff at night um, because that's not healthy for me. So figure out what that is for you, but let's stick to it. And then I had this thing I used to tell myself where I was like, because I, you know, as therapists, we hear a lot of horrible things and it makes you, it can cause you to like lose trust in the world or faith in people. Cause you're like, wow, they were like, these parents really harmed their child. And this is like, it's so depressing and it's hard, right? It can be a lot to hold. But I've always told myself, At least they have reached out for help and I'm glad that I was there to help them. I'm glad that they found me and that now we can work on this, right? Shitty things happen. We can't change the past, but we can change the future. And what an empowering thing to think. I'm so glad that I'm here and I can work with them and we can change the future for them. And so, you know, I would encourage you to find something similar that you can say to yourself, like, yeah, shitty things happen. This is really challenging, but I'm glad that they found me. I'm glad I get to assist them and be there for them during this really tough time right? Whatever you need to tell yourself, find a way to make it okay. And I know easier said than done, but those rituals will really help. Okay. Now let's move on to question number five. This question says, Hey, Katie, first of all, thank you for all that you do. Your videos have helped me through some very difficult times. Of course, of course. Oh, your work truly makes an impact. Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you. It says, now my question Sometimes when I'm in therapy, I have things I want to tell my therapist, but I don't always know how to start the conversation. I worry it'll be strange or out of context. Sometimes to combat this, I'll say things vaguely in hopes that she'll ask for more details and I, so I can open up. When she doesn't, I feel discouraged, but I know that it's not fair to her. How do I begin to work on that? Do I need to just tell her that I'm doing that so she can recognize it when I'm doing it and help me be more confident? Um, no, that the the vague is not going to help. Okay. When our vagueness is rewarded, it's actually not that great for us long term because we need to find ways to be more assertive and be able to speak up. And yes, easier said than done, but just hang with me. So, and a lot of people left this in the comments below, but I used to have patients um, email or text in between session, knowing that I would not reply, but that I would bring it up in session. So when you feel like you can't say something in session, you could get it to your therapist in another way. Another trick that I've used for years and years and years and many of you've heard me say this is bring in um, journal about it, write it out and then bring that in. Bring in some notes and hand those to your therapist. Or if you can just do it, rip off the band-aid, blurt it out. It doesn't matter if it's out of context. I've been talking about so many things and had a patient say, "By the way, my dad abused me from the ages of 6 to 7." Or I've told you guys we call them doorknob confessions when a patient's just about to leave, like they've paid, the session's over, they're leaving. And they're like, by the way, and they drop some bomb, some like atomic bomb level shit. Like, oh, by the way, you know, um, I I was molested by my teacher all through middle school. Bye. And they just like leave. And you're like, okay. Um, now we're taught how to manage those as therapists in school, but it's still shocking to me how people do that. And you can do that. It's very normal. And it's because of this. It's because we don't know how to start the conversation. And what do I say? And what if they don't believe me? And what if it sounds weird? Blah, 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 right? We, it's hard. It's a lot. So know that you can blurt it out however you need. You can read from something you wrote. You can ask your therapist if you can email some notes, knowing that they won't reply in between, but that you just need to get some things out, that you're struggling to speak up about things. You can tell her that you try to vaguely move things toward that, but that's not really... It sounds weird to say, but I don't want to encourage that behavior because that's not really what I want from you. I want you to be able to say, you know what, this happened, I'm upset, or this is worrying me and I want to talk about it. And I know we're not there yet, but that's a goal. And so you could even just tell your therapist, hey, there's lots of things I want to bring up, but I just don't feel confident enough to just say it. Can we work on that? Right? They can help you. And building confidence has a lot to do with the way we talk to ourselves. So we can use bridge statements and things I've mentioned over and over. Um, Or like even building mastery, like getting good at something else, totally unrelated can help us feel a little bit better. But let's start there with just some of those options and ways to move forward. But again, don't think it has to be within the context of what you're talking about, and that you have to have all the language to put to it. You can blurt out stuff. I've had patients do it over and over and over again. And it's always helpful. And I'm always glad that they did. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, Hey Katie, I struggle with an extreme lack of motivation to do anything that's not required of me. I have a challenging job that I can do well, but I spend evenings and weekends zoned out in bed hmm. mindlessly scrolling through social media or YouTube. I can't even get the motivation to open a book or start a TV show or movie or even go for a walk. But I enjoy those things when I can force myself to do them. I'm so confused as to what, why I am this way. I was diagnosed with ADHD, but I'm wondering if I also have depression. I'm wondering too, because this sounds a lot like depression. I don't feel sad or hopeless, but I do feel like life is flying by and I'm not able to enjoy it like a normal person. I take a low dose of Adderall and wish I could take an SSRI, but I can't tolerate them due to unrelated, an unrelated sleep disorder. P.S. Watching your channel inspired me to start therapy again. Tomorrow is day one. Yay. Amazing. I'm so excited for you. Okay. Hopefully therapy will also give you some insight into this and let them know this is happening. Okay. Now you're on a low dose of Adderall talk to your psychiatrist and let them know that you're feeling this way. You're completely unmotivated. You don't, if it's not required, you're not doing it. Because ADHD and depression can often be misdiagnosed, but they also, there's been newer research and newer, I mean, like I think 2019, but I'd have to look it up again, that ADHD and depression, they're like buddies. They hang out a lot. The comorbidity rates are incredibly high, meaning that a lot of people with ADHD also have depression. And we could easily see that because if you didn't know, ADHD is caused by a lower amount of dopamine in your brain and dopamine transponders. Meaning that even if you do have the dopamine, the little like Sherpas that get the dopamine to your reward center in your brain just are not there. So you don't feel rewarded as easily. So you could understand how that could also be depression-based because depression means that we have low serotonin also, but dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, all of that is a little bit lower in depression. I believe, I think I'm missing one other neurotransmitter. But anyway, you get the point that they there there is some overlap in those low levels of dopamine and serotonin, okay? So ADHD, that low dose of Adderall, I want you to talk to your psychiatrist because in some cases, now I'm not a doctor, that's why I want you to talk to your psychiatrist, but a lot of my patients with ADHD will tell me that when they upped their Adderall, their depressive symptoms went down. Hmm. Now, not everybody. Everybody's different. Um, My patients with more anxiety stuff, it's not as helpful. So it just depends. But depression stuff, it can help sometimes especially if you can't tolerate an SSRI, we can't go the traditional route. And yes, that's off-label to use Adderall for uh, depression, but a lot of psychiatrists do. So again, talk to your psychiatrist, ask them about this and tell them that you just don't have any motivation unless something's required of you. Because a lot of my patients with what I would call like high functioning depression is they're able to go out and do all the things they need to do. They show up for work, they show up for the events they're supposed to show up for, they do all the basic things. And then like you do, when they don't have to do anything, and it would be time to do things for them, nope, they crash. And it's like, I just can't get out of bed all weekend. Or I get home from work, I eat dinner, and I go to bed. And it's because it takes all of our energy just to muster up, you know, the oomph to do the things that are required of us. So when things aren't required, we're like, finally, I can rest. I'm so tired. Because a lot of people don't realize how, not just exhausting, but just I don't know. The, it's the, It steals our motivation, but depression is just so exhausting and so debilitating sometimes, and it can be hard to do anything else. And so I have a feeling that's what's happening. I would talk to your doctor. Again, you know, the dopamine, the dopamine transponders. I'm very curious about that. And if that's, you know, if we also have depression and maybe we need a higher dose of Adderall, or maybe we need to try something different because SSRIs are just one type of treatment for depression. It's not the only treatment. So talk to your psychiatrist and I'm glad you're seeing a therapist. Hopefully this will help too. Um, But that, that should really, really help you feel better. Okay. Now let's move on to question number seven. This question says, Hey Katie, I'm so grateful for your channel. Oh, I'm so, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm grateful for you. I'm about a year away from graduating as an LMHC. That'd be a licensed mental health counselor, I think. Um, Says, and your channel and podcast have taught me a lot. Yay. I am diagnosed with GAD or generalized anxiety disorder and depression, and I go through episodes of self-harm. Last episode was last week. Lately, my anxiety has been happening all the time. It's exhausting. Sometimes I wish I could just go to sleep so I don't have to feel it anymore. My psychiatrist has me on meds, but they're not helping. And she just tells me to be patient. I hate, I hate that answer. Okay, I have been on different doses over the past year, and it only seems to be getting worse. Okay, so here's something I want. I know I'm not a psychiatrist, but I do read research about medications, and I do know a lot about them. Um, three to six weeks is what we're supposed to give to an SSRI, SNRI, otherwise known as antidepressant, we're supposed to give medication that amount of time to show any improvement. Now, if you only feel worse and you don't feel any improvement, you've been on something at least for a month, they should consider switching you to something different. I know it's exhausting and it still takes time. We have to be patient. It does take time. Three to six weeks is a long fucking time. Like a month and a half feels like forever, right? Even a week feels like forever when we're not feeling good. But if you've been over the past year and you've only been on one type of medication, I would push them. I would say, I feel worse and I try to be patient, but it's not getting better, you know? Um, okay. It says, in addition to the horrible anxiety, I'm having a super hard time focusing. I get so distracted so easily. Could the two be related? My psychiatrist is ruling out or in BPD and or bipolar disorder. Are you on an SSRI or SNRI? Because if you had bipolar disorder, that most likely would push you into a manic episode. And that would like make the bipolar disorder reveal itself. Um, Because often we think of bipolar disorder as, you know, like these ups and downs and things like that. But for a lot of people, it's just depression symptoms for a really long time. And then we have these kind of elevated, which I'd call like hyper, a hypomania, you know, this little elevated energy where we feel really productive and really good. And we sometimes even really like it. And so we, it might go undiagnosed for a long time. So if you're on an SSRI and it hasn't pushed you into mania B, Suspicious of that of bipolar. Um, as a side note, the only thing I can think that is causing these symptoms to increase is not working or taking classes. I work at the high school so we get summers off. Any advice or tips for or coping strategies would be helpful. Thanks for your amazing work. Keep it up. Of course. Um, getting distracted easily and having a super hard time focusing could be uh, ADHD could be depression. Those are both key components of both of those diagnoses, so I would want to know, yeah where it's coming from. Um, it could be bipolar disorder as well. If you're feeling kind of a manic, it doesn't sound like you are, but maybe that's happening. I don't find that in my BPD patients, the hard time focusing, distracted. Maybe that some of them are like, yeah, I feel that way. I don't, it's not one of the symptoms that I'm looking for. So I would talk to your psychiatrist and ask about ADHD, ask about depression. I think it could be one of those. Um, Yeah. And also having all that time on your hands probably isn't good. When we have depression, it sounds weird, but having things that are required of us is actually helpful because it gets us out. It gets sun on our face. It makes us move our bodies and we can end up feeling better. Um, That's why a lot of my depressed patients, I'll recommend that they like foster a dog for a while or get a cat or something like that um, so that they have a reason to get up and get out. Dogs are great because you have to walk them usually if you have an apartment or something. And in LA, almost everybody lives in apartments. So I used to always recommend that. I was like, get on the foster list and start fostering dogs if you can, because then you have to get up and you have to walk them. And that was like life saving. I mean, some of my patients would consider taking their own life and they would be worried about their dog. So, you know, it can save a life. I think that can be really helpful. Um, But I say all that to say that because you have summers off and because there's nothing that's being required of you, it might be incredibly hard for you to be motivated at all and to focus on anything and wanting to do anything. And so, It could be feeding into that. Um, My recommendations for you are to talk to your psychiatrist, ask them about ADHD and depression. You know, say, like, I'm wondering if it's these things. I'm not trying to do your job for you. I just, you know, tell them your symptoms. I get distracted easily. I have a hard time focusing um, and any other symptoms that you're having. You know, you have horrible anxiety. So that's not, you know, it doesn't feel good. And you've been on the medication for a year and you've moved like they've messed with the doses, but you've never felt better. Dosing should be like, you should start to feel some effect of the medication. Like, oh, I guess I'm not as suicidal or, oh, I guess I'm a little more motivated. Hmm. If you really think about it. Right. And then they'll increase the dose and then you start to feel even better. Right. And that's how it should be. It shouldn't be like, I don't feel good. I actually feel worse. And they're like, let's increase the dose. And you're like, I feel worse again. In my mind, I'd be like, well, let's try something else because it's clearly not working. So let them know. Um, I know that's not what you really asked me about. You asked about coping strategies. I feel like we need to get the symptoms under control. I can give you a ton of different coping skills and things, but if you're not feeling, you know, you're getting distracted, you're having a tough time focusing, you have your anxieties through the roof, we want to get those symptoms under control so that we can do some other coping skills and strategies. Now I do have that whole video, 25 coping skills. You can just look it up on YouTube, 25 coping skills, Katie Morton. It will come up. Not only do I offer 24 in the video, but the comments are filled with zillions of others. Um, So give those things a try. And also I encourage you if you can do some opposite action. So when you want to say no and you want to stay home and you want to do nothing, and someone says, Hey, we're going out for dinner. I push you, push you, challenge you, challenge you. Just say yes and get yourself going. Just go. I know easier said than done, but opposite action is hard. We fight against it. We do the opposite thing that we want to do. So you want to get in bed, get out, go do something, call somebody, you know, um, and that can be helpful. And it ends up making us feel better in the end as well. And that connection with people is important too. So let's get together with people and let's get out. Okay. Final question. Question number eight says, hi, Katie, how do you know if you want to be a therapist? Like, how do you figure out if you'd be a good one? if it's the right career for you or if it's just something that you have an interest in but maybe shouldn't pursue also what are some other ways to be involved or work in the mental health field all i know is i'm very interested in all of this and i want to help people but i don't really know where to start and what's right for me thank you great question okay now up front i'm going to say that if you want to get into the psychology realm to become a mental health professional as a way to better understand yourself and fix your own ish, don't do it. That's what makes a bad therapist. You know, people like, oh, they talked about themselves a lot. Oh, they fell asleep in session. Oh, they forgot this important key piece. Oh, they said they understood trauma and they didn't. That's because that person got into their field, their line of work, because they wanted to fix themselves. And instead of going into their own therapy, they decided to try to offer it to other people. Now, I'm not passing judgment on anybody in particular, but I know even in my graduate program, there were a lot of people who refused to get into their own therapy Because what do I need? I'm going to be a therapist. I don't need to go into therapy. Like, there was just a lot of pushback, and I was like, I, you know, I felt kind of weird. I'm like, I've been in therapy for a long time. That's actually why I like this. I thought it was helpful for me, and I wanted to help other people. Right. So, that's a kick. That's first thing out. I just have to say it because if we had less people doing that, then we'd have less bad therapists, and that would be good for, in my mind. Okay. So, there's that. Now, if you struggle with, Boundaries between yourself and others. If you find yourself picking up on like your friend's moods and feelings, and um, and they'll like being around someone who's upset can like ruin your whole day. I mean, it doesn't mean you can't be a therapist, but that means that's something we need to work on in therapy because boundaries are going to be like a lifesaver. Like we're talking about that work life balance with the, the nurse, right? It's hard, and if we don't have those boundaries, if they're already difficult for us, it's gonna therapy's really going to challenge those, okay? Um, so there's that now. How do you figure out you'd be a good one? I think you just have to be interested in people and interested in learning about them. Um, I One thing I do know about myself that I've recognized probably in the last like five or six years is that I don't make many assumptions about people and their process. Um, a lot of my friends and family members will do that. They'll be like, well, you know, when there's any kind of uh, issue or something's happening, people are upset. They're like, well, maybe they thought this way. I don't think like that. I don't try to assume what someone else thinks or does. And I think that makes me a good therapist because assumptions only set us up for disappointment. Yeah, you might be right and then you won't be disappointed, but yeah, you also might be wrong and then you will be disappointed and or more upset, right? And so instead of assuming I try to learn. We have to have difficult conversations and we have to ask those hard questions and we have to get the answers, right? And so if you find yourself able to not make assumptions and listen to learn, you find people interesting, you're going to be great. And wanting to help is just a big, a key piece. Um, Because like I said, it's not like you don't make a good living as a therapist. You can make a decent living I want to say when I started school, the average income was like 55,000. And I think most of my friends who do it probably make more than that now. So let's say the average income's like 70 grand. So you can make a decent living if you're in a big city. Um, obviously it costs more if you're in a big city, but you can make a good living. Um, but you also get to really help people and it's just such a rewarding job. Oh, it's just such a great job. So anyways, all that to say, um, and if you're not good at motivating yourself to like market yourself, um, don't open a private practice, then work at a clinic or a hospital. It's easier. Um, just FYI. Okay. Now, other ways that you could be involved in the mental health field. Um, oh, and also side note, if we're not taking care of our own mental health in general, we're not going to be a good therapist. We can't show up for other people if we don't show up for ourselves. And the stress and the, the, the holding of pe- other people's issues is going to get too heavy. And it can be really, I've seen so many of my friends burn out because um, they're just not taking care of themselves. So, you know, and we're not, I'm not saying I'm better. D- don't get me wrong. I struggle with the work-life balance as well. But i um, just keeping that in mind. Now, other ways to get involved. There's a ton of ways to get involved in the mental health field. Um, you can, uh, there's lots of volunteer opportunities within organizations. Like you can uh, do stuff with NAMI. Um, I, I used to back cause Santa Monica used to have the, the mental health walk. I think it was just called the walk, but the NAMI walk anyway, every year in October. And we would, uh, Sean and I would donate money and we'd raise, sometimes we'd raise money with the community and we would go do the walk. Why not get outside? And it's, it's a great organization and it's a great uh, thing to be a part of so you can get a part of any of those kinds of nonprofits, just check and make sure that the money really goes towards you know the people who need it. I always hate when we give money to some organizations and then you're like, and the owner of you know not Nami but another, you bought a fourteen million dollar house and you're like, that's not right. Wait, you're supposed to help people. So you know, there's Nami, there's the National Institute for Suicide Prevention. I think they're headquartered out of New York. Um, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Moutier, she had left, was she in San Diego? She was in California anyway. I met her at different conferences and she went to head that up probably like 10 years ago now, but she's great. Christine Moutier. Um, anyway, so look into some of those nonprofits that you know of. You can also work with in like crisis text line. You can do some of that like crisis counselor stuff. They do trainings and the trainings I believe are just like a few weeks and then you can help other people. Um, I also think you can help out at schools and you know, if you have your undergraduate degree in psychology, I believe it depends on the, the district, but you can ask like what level you can assist at because sometimes they'll help you. They'll still let you like talk to students. If you're like a, you know um, you can get like your, it's not school counselor accreditation, but anyway, there's little credentials you can get for short trainings so that you can still assist. But those are just other ways to be involved. Um, yeah. And I guess it just depends. That's kind of the, if you're wanting like client focused stuff, those are the ways that I would go about it. Um, and being interested in it is just the beginning. That's how it started for me. I was just interested in psychology. I find people fascinating. I took some courses and I just continued to be fascinated. So I think that the, the, my biggest encouragement for anybody out there who's trying to figure out what I want to do with my life, what career path is best for me, follow your interests and see where they lead. I think we have this like assumption and I know there's pressure and obviously like money is tight and it's, our economy's shitty and you know, blah, blah. But um, there's this pressure when we're growing up to be like, oh, I know what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a lawyer. And we go through school bup, 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 from like the time we're a child, but that's not the norm. And I've had a lot of friends who like, I'm going to be a lawyer. And then they be a lawyer. Lo- they're a lawyer for like a year and they're like, I fucking hate it. And then what do we do? Right. And so my encouragement is to follow what you're interested in where that leads you. If that doesn't make a living for you, you have another job that you do part-time or full-time and do that other thing on the side. I think we put too much pressure on ourselves to figure out what we want to be and think that once we've decided, we can't change our minds. You can always change your mind. It's never too late. Life's too, like we spend most of our life at work or doing something related to work. So let's make sure it's something that we love that's fulfilling. And I know some people are like, but I can't make a living doing that. Okay, well, then our job is just our job. And then we have the thing that we do and we dedicate time to that so that it is fulfilling. Because to do work, you know, especially to do the mental health work that we, that I do, it can be really taxing but it can be so fulfilling. And I want to make sure that the people who enter the field actually do it because they love it. And it's interesting and they enjoy people and they find it fulfilling because it can be such a rewarding job, but it's not for everybody, right? Like, I don't think I'd make the best, I don't know, a uh, cook. That's for sure. A chef. No. Um, I don't like working late. I don't like working weekends. <laughs> it's not gonna, I also don't think I'm that good at cook. Um, You know, we have to find things that we're good at, things that we enjoy, things that are interesting, things we find ourselves wanting to learn about, right? That's where we should go and we should pursue it Um, and follow it until it's not interesting anymore. Or until you feel like, oh, I found a job. I can make, I can make the money I need to, to pay my bills. I'm going to do this, right? Um, Yeah. Don't feel pressure to know what you're going to be or feel like, because I've been doing this job for five years, that's all I can do. That's not, that's not true. We can, we can always pivot we can always change our jobs we can always do something else okay that's it thank you so much for listening and watching thank you for sharing this podcast it really does help it helps us grow um i know we i don't do any you know ad reads but maybe at some point we'll be able to do that um, to make some money off of the podcast. But right now, um, I just really appreciate the shares. I really appreciate you giving it a review. Um, And I appreciate you sending in your questions and being part of the community. So have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week, do your homework, and I'll see you next time. Bye.